I'm Martin Shipton, Chief Reporter of Media Wales, and you're listening to my podcast, Martin Shipton Meets. It's Martin Shipton, and today I'm with Professor Patrick McGuinness of Oxford University, who lives with his family in Carnarvon in Wales, but has an extremely interesting family background. Perhaps you could tell us a little about your family background, Patrick. Yes, my father was an Englishman of Irish extraction who came from Newcastle. His father worked in the shipyards in Wallsend-on-Tyne, and my mother was from Belgium, from a small Walloon town called Bouillon, which was also a very industrial town, though as I was growing up, the two factories that had kept the place alive had just shut. And my earliest memory, really, of understanding kind of collective time was watching people get poorer um, and with fewer and fewer things to do and my grandfather suffering from emphysema and all of these things which are perhaps not unfamiliar to uh, people in South Wales and indeed North Wales where I now live. But uh, the interesting thing is that a lot of your work, and as well as being a professor of French and comparative literature uh, at Oxford, you're also um, a very distinguished poet and uh, novelist. And also, in addition to that, you've got a book that was very much based on childhood memories, which is called Other People's Countries. And there you're writing very much about uh, Bouillon, the the town in the French the Walloon part of Belgium. And memory plays an enormous part in your work, doesn't it, actually? Yes, it does. Uh, Memory is possibly the main thing I'm interested in, maybe the only thing I'm interested in, and everything else that I'm interested in is like a subsidiary franchise of memory as a subject. Um, Growing up in Bouillon, I was, in a sense, bathed in my grandparents' memories, and my grandparents remembering, for example, the Second World War, my great-grandmother, Julia, remembering the First World War, this this small town which had been invaded and re-invaded and then liberated and invaded again for pretty much all of its history. And they were constantly telling stories about what the place used to be like. So I felt that I was living vicariously through them. And I still feel that way now, because... I still have the house in Bouillon that my grandmother left to me and my sister. We go there several times a year. We're going next week for Easter. And the house is like a memory as well, in the sense that it's fading and getting more and more decrepit. And it's musty and kind of melancholy uh, to me, although I'm very attached to it. And for my children, it's a happy place. It's a place of holidays, whereas for me, it's... It's a place that summons up all the ghosts, really, all the ghosts who are my family and my forefathers and the culture that my mother left, because all of my cousins and aunts and uncles are still there. And I keep thinking of my parallel life if my mother hadn't left, and I imagine the the bouillon version of me doing perhaps something similar, teaching in a local school and so on. And I feel that my real life, that is to say being a professor in Oxford, is the parallel life of the original Bouillon person I could have been. So the story, again, is not unfamiliar to countries like Wales, countries like Ireland. It's the story of 
expatriation and people leaving and the place that they've left behind staying somehow pickled in their memories. So, I don't know, I, I thought of my bouillon upbringing as completely unique and as I've got older I've realised that most people's lives are like this. They involve leaving. You don't just leave the place, you leave your own childhood and you spend the rest of your life dealing with that expatriation. That's why I called it other people's countries. The other people's countries are also childhoods. Yourself in your childhood, which is another country, as someone famously said. In your first novel, Last Hundred Days, which is about the uh, set at the time of the fall of uh, the uh, Romanian dictator Ceausescu and his, and his wife, you are also talking a lot there uh, within the novel about memory, and there's this extremely evocative theme in the book about a man who is, as it were, mapping out the lost parts of Bucharest because Ceausescu was uh, quite a brutal dictator, had no sense of um, heritage, uh, wasn't interested in that. A lot of the old Bucharest was just destroyed uh, by uh, bulldozers at his instigation. And yet you have this character who's actually evoking what Bucharest was like before the bulldozers moved in. What was it that attracted you to that particular idea? It's autobiographical in a way, because when I lived in Bucharest, that is to say between 85 and 88... And we should explain that your father used to work for the British Council, and that's right. you had a bit of a transi- transitory life as a, as a young person, but you'd gone there, hadn't you, yeah. for some studies? Yeah, and... We The reason we travelled so much is my father worked for the British Council, which organises the teaching of English and cultural exchanges. So every two or three years, we moved countries. And I ended up in Bucharest for a year and a half, having got a strange little job teaching English to diplomats. I loved it. You know, I hadn't yet gone to university. I was 18. I'd just left school. I was young and inexperienced. I wasn't stupid, but I didn't know very much, not not very much about reality. And I was hurled into this totally insane system, you know, collapsing communism, you know, of the most hypocritical, uh, most depressing, greyest kind. And corruption absolutely everywhere which in its way was quite exciting too because where there is corruption there's also a lot of kind of texture and movement and everything is constantly up for grabs and so how would corruption impinge on you as an individual how did it impinge on you when you were a young man there i used to i used to do what a lot of westerners did which was probably illegal i would sell various hard to get hold of items like cassettes, um, cameras, which I would bring back from Britain and get large dollops of the local currency, um, the lei, at the unofficial exchange rate, and then buy things. But of course there wasn't much to buy because although in these communist countries people were basically well paid, there was basically nothing in the shops. And The corruption was really also an issue of this kind of secret society, which was made up of Westerners plus Communist Party apparatchiks. And they had their own shops where you could go and buy 
the, the most extraordinary delicacies, caviar, scented candles, steak, things that people hadn't seen in Romania maybe since the 50s or 60s. And it was everywhere, and the corruption was in your face, and no one seemed to be doing anything about it or getting angry about it the way they did in the other places I visited, you know, like Poland, you know, you had all the solidarity uh, movement beginning, but everyone in Romania seemed incredibly cowed and crushed. Television was, what, two hours a night with just news about what Ceausescu had done. The newspapers were four pages of Ceausescu, you went into a school or a university lecture hall and there would be portraits of Ceausescu and his academician wife, professor, Dr. Elena Ceausescu, who everyone knew had actually left school without any qualifications, but had been, um, had been given all these degrees and had scientists working for her and inventing stuff for her. Yeah, the whole thing was crazy. But everyone knew it. There was nobody who believed any of it. And yet somehow we, we lived through it. And I, I spent 18 months in this place. And in fact, I spent a year without going back to Britain at all. So I learned enough of the language to get by. And I was finding myself living in this, this mad world, saying things I didn't believe. I couldn't trust anybody because any Romanians who talked to foreigners would have to go and report in the local Securitate office within seven hours of having seen you. So even my friends had to go and report on their conversations with me, and yet they were still my friends. And they were proper friendships, even though I knew that they were betraying my not very interesting confidences. And it was an incredible thing to learn at the age of 18 that you could have genuine relationships, genuinely love and care about people and be loved and cared about in return, even in a world of lies where you were also being betrayed. It's not a healthy thing to learn, but it stopped me seeing the world in black and white. And also Bucharest was beautiful. It was a beautiful city, you know, the Paris of the East. Um, it looked like a cross between between Paris and Istanbul. And Ceausescu was knocking buildings down at an incredible rate. Uh, I read somewhere that an area the size of Venice was knocked down in Bucharest. Monasteries, old buildings, everything was crushed because dictators love new buildings. Um, it's their, you know, it's a kind of dictator's Lego set where, um, and you see it, you know, you look at people like Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, the first thing they want to do is eradicate history and make their own. Some would say we're getting a bit of that in Cardiff. Now. Well, I, I have to say that uh, having not been in Cardiff for a while and stepping out of the station, I did have slight Ceausescu flashbacks to the old Cardiff that I knew, which probably doesn't exist anymore. So, this latest uh, novel, which has just been published, Throwing to the Wolves, is in a sense going off in a different direction, but the issue of memory is still very much there. And what is quite remarkable about the novel is that it looks at the treatment of an innocent man who was pilloried, monstered, as you describe it, as a murderer of a young woman. And the, the novel is actually very loosely based on the murder in 2010 of Joanna Yates in Bristol. Uh, and there was, as most people will recall, a lot of extremely pejorative publicity about a teacher who essentially lived in the same building 
and he was absolutely monstered by the uh, by the media at the time and uh, even though uh, he was completely innocent of this murder the publicity that attached to him made most people believe that he was in fact uh, the guilty person and the thing is that Christopher Jeffries uh, was actually your teacher wasn't he and he was the teacher who actually inspired your interest in poetry and literature he was yes I was sent to an English boarding school when my parents were in Iran. It was the Iranian Revolution, and one of the things about being the child of a British civil servant abroad is you get your school fees paid. And obviously it had become, I think, too dangerous for me and my sister to continue taking the bus to the school we went to in Iran, especially after the bus was attacked. So... I was sent to this English boarding school uh, where I went to the prep school and I, I was incredibly miserable. But when I got into the older school, the upper school, I guess it was called, I suddenly began to to get it, I think. Uh, also, my English wasn't very good because we spoke French at home. So it took me a while to get to the point in English where I felt that I was expressing myself rather than um, I don't know, a, a kind of uh, artificially created self that one needs just to get through school without being bullied, which I mostly did. And as you say, Chris Jeffries was one of our teachers. He was certainly the teacher who took us off the syllabus, out of the classroom in our minds, showed us interesting films, uh, interesting poetry, and more than any other teacher. He was the one who helped me develop my love of poetry, which um, has always been with me, and my interest in literature. And I went to Cambridge to do an English degree, and I stayed in touch with him for a time afterwards, and then, then we lost touch. And then I saw suddenly that he had been accused by the press as much as by anybody else of, of this murder and well you, the book is loosely based on that in the sense that the character is not Jeffrey's explicitly not you know he looks different sounds different likes different things but it, it is about it's an attempt to write a state of the nation novel about trying to work out why we live in a country which is so riddled with xenophobia and with hatred of difference, why we live in a country that is run by brutal and brutalised, posh, unaccountable, rich public school boys. Um, and I know those people because I was at school with them. I remember their type. Anyone who's been to the English boarding school system with its rife bullying and teacher-endorsed bullying will understand that these places are factories for the production of men without empathy who think of the whole country's um, lives and future as essentially a game, nothing more than seminar room banter. And whatever they do, they will be protected by their money and their connections. And if anybody is surprised by... Brexit. I certainly wasn't. And I certainly wasn't surprised by what happened to Chris Jeffries and how he was monstered um, by the press. And I, 
I had been writing a novel about somebody who is trying to re-access their memories of their school days, and I'd abandoned the novel. And then I returned to the Jeffreys case and thought, well, maybe actually I can, I can shape the book that I was writing around that. So that's what I've done. It's not really about that. I think it's about, it's about how we are where we are. One of its other themes, actually, is what it was like in the 1980s to be a boy with an Irish name or to, be, to have Irish family or Irish connections at a time where you were constantly asked what you thought about the IRA, where you were constantly being asked to justify or condemn Irish Republican actions and so on and so forth. It's nothing like as bad, I think, as what Muslims have to justify now to people demanding that they condemn this, that, or the other atrocity, which, of course, they personally and as, as a community have zero to do with. But I look around today and I, I am constantly reminded of the 1980s. Also, the, what would you call it, this kind of constant aroma of um, sexual abuse and paedophilia that the schools and I suspect also various other organisations including media organisations and as we know after Jimmy Savile um, television was riddled with this stuff and one of my characters says that the case that they are solving because this is also a crime novel is a colonoscopy of the country and I don't know if that's a way of selling a book, but it is a colonoscopy, of uh, certainly of the 1980s. One of the disturbing things about the monstering of um, the figure in your novel, Mr Wolfram, who is loosely based on Christopher Jeffries, and I think in terms of this particular element, replicate it, was the way in which some of his former pupils, as it were, joined in the monstering and were quite happy to be quoted by these red-top newspapers mm. as part of the monstering. What do you think that tells us about the, the state of society, about the state of the media? That's a, that's a very interesting question. Were they doing it out of malice? I don't think they were. I think they wanted attention. I think we all have... There's, always, there's a part of us that wants to be close to the action. If... If, for example, you see someone you know on television uh, being accused of a murder, there's a part of you that thinks, they can't possibly have done that. I really like them. This is my friend. There's another part of you that might be thinking, oh, God, imagine. Imagine if they had done it, because then I would know the person who committed this terrible murder. And when the case was coming through the pages of the newspaper... Some of the people that I was at school with were allowing themselves to be quoted in ways which, even though what they were saying wasn't especially bad, if the comments were arranged in a certain way, it looked terrible. Like, you know, I don't know, um, he had a terrible temper. Well, actually, he didn't have a terrible temper, but maybe once he got angry. But it's not exactly libel, because... You can't judge something like a temper or whatever. Or he made me feel strange and all this stuff. And it was all done through innuendo and suggestion. And the papers knew this, of course, because it makes it harder to sue if something is a series of very specifically arranged pieces of 
suggestion. Although I'm happy to say that Jeffries himself did sue them uh, successfully. But what does it tell us about society? It tells us that human beings' lives are being used as fuel by certain media organizations. And it also says, tells us that perhaps all of us, even if we think that we are above getting into the sort of pack mentality and the groupthink, all of us have some secret little voyeur inside us who actually wants to be part of the story. Let's talk a bit about your connection with Wales. Because yes. You're not originally from Wales, but you have lived in Wales for quite a while. You used to live in Cardiff at one mm-hmm. point, and um, your partner is Welsh, isn't she? Yeah. You've developed quite an interesting perspective on Wales as someone from outside the country moving in, and in a sense, in some respects, taking up cudgels on uh, Wales's behalf, one would say. What is your perception of the state of nationhood in Wales and the way that it is um, used or abused by politicians? I came here to live in 2000 and it was the first time I had ever lived in a country, however small, where the governing political wisdom was that the people of that country were simply incapable of running their own affairs. And one of the reasons perhaps an outsider like me sees this is that you've all become normalised to it, you know. Um, It simply doesn't make sense. I don't know, it's such a strange thing to have to explain to somebody else. Yeah, we're we're a country and we're really proud, but actually, no... um, we don't really want to run our own affairs, so um, we're going to keep electing politicians in a political establishment that thinks that fundamentally, year in, year out, election in, election out, the destiny of this country, of which we're also terribly proud, of course, is going to be decided by people like William Rees-Mogg and Boris Johnson. And this this seems to me utterly baffling, and maybe it's because... I came from outside, and because I come from a small country, or two small countries, if you put Belgium and Ireland together, but it doesn't seem to me like a satisfactory state of affairs. It also baffles me how a country that created and generated so much wealth for others, notably its large neighbour and private companies, seems so resigned to being poor and being told that all it's ever going to be is poor. So I, I'm baffled and I'm as surprised now as I was 20 years ago. In a sense, I'm more surprised because nothing's changed. Do you think it's a psychiatric state stemming from the fact that um, it could be said that uh, Wales is England's first and last colony? Yeah, I think it, there's a psychopathology of it. And I think that the... I don't want to use terms like Stockholm Syndrome, which one quite often hears, but it's like nobody notices anymore and what what amazes me is simply the incredible lack of ambition of the political class and so I, I'm not especially optimistic about the future of Wales's nationhood um, I would have been I think if, if I felt that um, there was some some way in which the people who lived here could be properly informed about 
the forces that govern their lives, namely who runs what and how much or how little power they have. And I think, if I'm going to be practical for a moment, um, I think the devolution of broadcasting would be the single thing that would change Wales for the better. And all the political parties would have to up their game because we would have a proper sense of um, how devolution works. You see, I'm amazed that people will say things like, oh, you know, the Assembly's just a talking shop or the Assembly is incompetent, when what they mean is the governing party that's been running the Assembly for 20 years. But what they also never question, for example, is why Parliament, which they have almost no say over, runs basically every facet of Welsh life while being utterly incompetent. I mean, properly incompetent, nasty and riddled with corrupt and deceitful people, liars, um, who are no longer ashamed to lie. And then you think, actually, the Assembly is really pretty good. It's transparent. It's relatively polite. Um, it's not this kind of revolting public school knockoff boys' club. So that that too concerns me in terms of the sort of political psychology of Wales. We spend all this time questioning somehow the legitimacy of the assembly, but we never question the legitimacy of Westminster rule, even at critical moments like this, when it is clearly an absolute, as I put it in. Um, an article I wrote for the London Review of Books. It's a Gotterdemmerung of ineptitude. I've never seen, and, and nor has anyone in Europe, incidentally. I've been doing a lot of travelling, and they look at the Houses of Parliament, and it, it is a place of quite, in, quite incredible comedy and tragedy at the same time. Yet no one says, let's abolish Parliament or let's get more powers from these incompetent people. Why not? I don't know. That seems to me very peculiarly Welsh. Even the Scottish have overtaken us and found some kind of consensus whereby even if you're a Scots Conservative, you basically think that um, power should be brought closer to the country. And yet there, are, there is mainstream opinion in both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party in Wales that would still abolish the Assembly. Of course, the issue of Brexit has brought into play the possibility of the United Kingdom breaking up. Uh, one could not rule out uh, the possibility of there being another referendum in Scotland and Scotland getting its independence. And also, uh, one couldn't rule out the possibility of a United Ireland coming about within a few years. Now, that would lead to a situation where Wales was, in a sense, a smaller appendage to England. What implication for Welsh nationhood would that have? Well, not a good one. I think I think you'd just be swallowed up in many ways. It's already happening. I picked up a copy of one of these magazines called North Wales Life, which is aimed at the Chester set, um, encouraging them to buy more and more properties up in North Wales. And there was a questionnaire saying, should Welsh second language go on being taught? This is the big question. Write in with your views. Now, the idea that you would move to somebody's country, buy a place in that country, and then question the legitimacy of the native tongue of that area, it seems to me peculiarly English. And 
no one else would tolerate it, and yet Wales somehow does. So I think in lots of small ways, lots of small ways, this kind of this being swallowed up is already happening. And I think that unless something changes, that is our fate, really. Do you think there's any chance that people will wake up? Oh, yeah, no, I do think so. I think people are waking up. I think um, there's lots of things about which I'm optimistic, like Yes Cymru and an attempt to make discussions about the Devo Max and extended devolution and independence part of the mainstream discourse. And I think there, there is optimism there. Part of the problem as well is that it's been very convenient for senior Labour politicians and senior Conservative politicians to call any talk of independence and so on extremist. But of course it's, there is nowhere in the world where the idea that you might run your own affairs is extremist, except for Wales. So I think there needs to be an open and unprejudiced discussion of the various possibilities we have. So I, I'm not entirely pessimistic at the political level but I, I do feel that a lot of the stuff that is swallowing us up is happening at the level of, I don't know, businesses and who owns what in Wales. I'm also a big fan of renationalising industries, for example. That's what I liked about the, the last Corbyn manifesto. It was like the 1970s again. And I think Wales could do that. That would be a really useful thing that wouldn't even be ideological. But that would help strengthen, I think our sense of nationhood. What would be nationalised then? Certainly the trains. I think we need to run our universities differently as well. I think we need to stop seeing our universities as just sort of appendages of the English system, but start trying to trying to integrate them almost back as the old University of Wales was. We need to stop paying students to leave the country, which seems to me counterproductive as well. We need to encourage people to to stay, you know, at, at every level, you know, whether it's to stay here for university, stay in their communities. And we keep failing to do that, really. And I, I guess I'm bothered by the fact that everyone says devolution hasn't changed people's lives and so on. And, and I think that's true, and we need to think about how it might. But it's almost too late, isn't it, really? Don't you think? I think... Like you, one has to somehow remain optimistic and although an analysis can be pessimistic, one always has to have there at the background the possibility that things will get better. Yes, I mean I'm optimistic about people, individual people. I'm more pessimistic about collectives, I think, and collective action. Patrick McInnes, thank you very much. Thanks very much for listening. That's the end of Series 2, but we'll have Series 3 before long, and in the meantime, there may be something extra. <laughs> <laughs>